Isaiah chapter 6, again, we were there last week, and this is maybe a part two. I don't know if you'd call it part two or if you'd just call it a whole other sermon on Isaiah 6. So that's where we will be. As we have in the first five chapters of Isaiah, so we will again today in the sixth chapter hear a very hard message of judgment from the Lord on the Lord's people. And as has happened in the earlier chapter, in the first five chapters, there, there is a glimmer of hope. And there is as well in this chapter a glimmer of hope that keeps those faithful to the Lord hopeful. Hopeful about the Lord's future. The Bible is a hopeful book. When you read it, there's so much about judgment. There's so much that seems hard but you have to keep reading because with every word that is hard, there is a word of hope. The Bible is a hopeful book. Its message gives us hope. Isaiah 6, where we are today, also shows us that God has raised up a prophet named Isaiah to take this message to his own people and to the nations around him ultimately to bring the message to us because the message of the Lord through Isaiah the messenger is for Isaiah's time, it is for our time, it is for all time. And as we look today at the way God raised up the messenger, Isaiah, we see that it's somewhat of a pattern. This is how God called Isaiah. This is how God calls Christians to himself to salvation. This is how God is calling his church to be in the world. This is how God is calling this congregation. This is what he wants from us. And so listen for that pattern, that calling, as we read this chapter today. Stand with me in honor of God's word, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim each had six wings with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to the other and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not <clears throat> keep on hearing, but do not understand. 
Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is God's word. You may be seated. Isaiah's conversion, and that seems like an appropriate word, his conversion and his call are for the purpose of speaking the message of the Lord to people. The context of this vision is spiritual decline. It's a beautiful song that we sing, we just did. But the context is spiritual decline. God's people have been unfaithful to him and therefore God's people are not fulfilling the purpose of bringing glory to God. In chapter one, we hear the Lord saying, my children, I raised you, but now you're rebels. In chapter three, we hear the Lord say, my people, I supported you, I supplied all of your needs, but now you're neglecting and rejecting my glorious presence. In chapter 5, we hear the Lord say, My vineyard, I planted you, I tended to you, but you have borne wild grapes unfit for good wine. What'd they do? Well, <clears throat> specifically, they became proud when they prospered. And when they became proud, when they prospered, they neglected God's word and they became corrupt in their worship. They put idols into their worship of the one living and true God. They practiced injustice toward one another, especially toward the widows and the orphans who are mentioned by Isaiah. <clears throat> their hearts became dull. Their ears were stopped up. Their eyes were blind. The context here is of decline. We need the work of God's Spirit. We need Christ to always be renewing us. Thankfully, <clears throat> when Christ came now, things are being renewed. We're being renewed from one level of glory into the image of Christ as he's moving toward newness. But in the moment, in Isaiah, they're in spiritual decline. Then we come to chapter 6, and he says, my messenger. 
I raised up, the Lord says, I'm raising you up my messenger to take my message to this people, to take it to the nations beyond them. This is the rest of the book of Isaiah. It's the message of the Lord that the messenger is to bring to them. The message is of judgment and hope. The messenger has to be raised up by the Lord himself. That is Isaiah 6. We're going to take, <clears throat> take it in that order, which is really the reverse order of the chapter. We're going to look at the message first, verses 9 through 13. And then we're going to look at the messenger, verses 1 through 9. The message, verses 9 through 13. Remember <clears throat> that the Lord has already spoken to his people at this point. In fact, for generations and for centuries before, since Moses, these people have heard the voice of the Lord. They have heard his very clear word. When you read the Old Testament, you might think that's complicated. But these people knew, and we can discern that if we read closely, we can sum up the word, the voice, the message of the Lord to his people prior to Isaiah's day in these simple words. Trust me and obey me. Know me and love me. Honor me and enjoy me. That's the summary of everything that was said to God's people through Moses before Isaiah came on the scene. And this is the very word that the people had neglected and rejected. It wasn't that they got hung up on the details mentioned in Leviticus. It's that they simply did not trust the Lord. They did not obey the Lord. They did not know their God. They did not love him supremely. They did not honor him and they did not enjoy his presence. So that's the context. We need to remember that as we come to these very interesting verses because we're going to hear some things that we've probably, that maybe you've never heard this before. But we need the context to understand it. So in verse 9. That's the word that the message that they were going to, look at verse 9, they were going to keep on hearing it. They were going to keep on seeing it. But this very message is that while they are hearing it, they will not understand it. While they are seeing it, they will not perceive it. Their hearts, their ears, their eyes are not able to see and comprehend and receive spiritual truth. And they will not turn. They will not repent. They will not be healed. And verse 10 is one of the most interesting verses. He says, make the hearts of this people dull. Make their eyes heavy. Make their eyes blind. It's an astounding statement. It's an awakening statement. What's happening here? They've heard the word. They've rejected the word. They're going to keep hearing the same word. But it's going to make them dull and blind and deaf and unable to respond. What's happening? It's very much like Paul, the Apostle Paul, explained in Romans chapter 1. An aspect of God's judgment on people is that when they reject him and his word, he gives them over to the hardness of their hearts 
and they become harder. Then when God's word is preached, it has the effect of a further hardening because there's a further rejection of God's word. Now without God's intervening by grace, then humans will not, cannot, hear and see and understand and turn and be healed. So, verses 9 and 10, the message is to Isaiah from the Lord, the message, we're going to get to the messenger, but the message is go and tell these people that they are under my judgment. That's the, that's the essence of what he is saying here. You are under my judgment because you will continue, the word will con- make you continue in spiritual dullness and blindness and deafness as a form of judgment because you have rejected me. Verse 11 says, Isaiah wants to know, how long? How long? And then in verse 11 is a key word, until. Verses 11 and 12 are describing what is going to happen. Until the discipline of the Lord is complete. These verses are describing what's coming in what we call the great exile. If you want to find some high points in the Old Testament, there are two words that you can hang on to that would help you. They both start in the English language with an E. The first one is the exodus. That's the time of Moses when they came out of Egypt. It's very important marker in the Old Testament. The other one is the exile. That's here. What's happening is the Lord is beginning to show his people because of their rejection. He's going to discipline them in an exile. And we're going to see that as we go along and it's recorded in the history, 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, it's recorded in the history. But what's going to happen is Israel the part of God's people that are to the north, that, that they broke away from each other at some point, so the northern part, they're going to be overtaken by the Assyrians. And Judah, city of Jerusalem in Judah, in the south, is going to be overtaken by the Babylonians. And it happened. About 720, the Assyrians with Israel. About 570, 68, the Babylonians with Judah, it happened. So verses 11 and 12 happened. They were taken into exile. They were held captive. And this captivity was an outward judgment, an outward discipline of God on his people. So verse 13 says the judgment is going to run its course And the land is going to look like a total loss. But a tenth is going to remain. A remnant will remain. It's like if you cleared a forest and you had one single stump left in the forest, we would say total loss. But we know what can grow from a stump. The first time, 
I don't know who invented, you know, the Bradford pear I hear is a hybrid tree that somebody made, engineered. God made it. How do I say this? Someone engineered this kind of tree so that when you throw up subdivisions like we have around here, you can just throw up trees and they grow real fast. That's a Bradford pear. And the first time I saw someone cut a Bradford pear, I thought they've ruined the tree until about three months later. And those things grow and grow and grow. We know what can come from a stump. Verse 13 says, the stump is a holy seed. Well, who and what is this holy seed? Who and what is this stump? Well, it, I think it's two things. But some would say, well, that is referring to the remnant, the faithful people who survived the exile and they return from the exile back to Jerusalem and they're faithful to God. People like Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament and others who remained faithful in the exile while they were in exile like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah and Mordecai and Esther. So that's the stump. That's, that's the holy seed, the remnant. And another way that people see this is the holy stump or, or the holy seed the stump is the anticipated prophesied messiah that would come to save his people and i simply say don't separate the two god will keep his remnant god will keep his he god kept in isaiah's day god kept his people he kept his remnant of people for the purpose of raising up from this people a savior who's the messiah a better way of saying it is into this people into this holy seed stump remnant people god planted put made to be born his son of a virgin who is the holy seed and as the word unfolds we see this is christ this is jesus he remains from him grows the vineyard that once failed but now will bear fruit abiding in christ you see, verses 9 through 13, this message, it's not a fatalistic message. Rather, it's a message of God's purposes in judgment and discipline to purge his people and God's plan through this purged people to raise up the Holy Seed Messiah to save his people. So let me just say, before we move on, brothers and sisters in Christ, wait upon the Lord. Submit to the Lord. Trust in the Lord, regardless of how difficult the times get, regardless of how spiritually dark it gets, regardless of the heavy disciplining hand of the Lord upon his people, wait upon the Lord because the Lord is doing his work. Hope in the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Hear the Lord. Heed the word of the Lord. He will get his work done. He will see us through to the end. Now back to the beginning of chapter 6. I told you we'd take it in reverse order. We've, we've heard the message. Now back to the beginning, the Lord will raise up a messenger. And the messenger is going to deliver the message. 
And there's such an eternal nature to the message. The message that we've talked about just now of judgment and hope is so spiritually waiting, weighty that it requires a significant preparation of the messenger. The messenger has to, be, has to have an experience with God to bring the message. When I was, I was thinking about this this week, when I was in middle school, I delivered newspapers in West Nashville to apartment, a couple of apartment complexes. I was, I was a messenger. But what's so interesting is I'm delivering these newspapers and I had never read the news. I had no emotional effect from reading the news because I'd never read it. I didn't know what was happening in the mid-70s. And I didn't know the people I was throwing papers and hit their door with. Not so with Isaiah. Isaiah has to have his own experience with the Lord and with the grace of the Lord to become a suitable messenger. It's, it's, the message is so weighty that God must raise up his messenger. And so he does. That's where we are next. Point, main point two, the messenger, verses one through nine. His experience, we're going to see, is like it's a pattern. Not in the details, but in general. Not all at once, like Isaiah, but a growing sense. It's a pattern. This is, this is really how you become a Christian. So before I go any further, I would just say if you're not a Christian uh, and you're wondering about Christianity, I'm going to talk about some things right now. We're going to talk about some things that will just help you understand what it means to be a Christian. It's also a pattern for entering the service of Christ as the church. It's the pattern for the, a congregation like ours. You see, God, by His grace, does a profound work of grace to bring us, and here's the pattern, we'll, I'll say it and then we'll go back through it, to bring us, his profound work of grace is to bring us to the end, the end of one lesser false hope, to give us a vision of himself and therefore a vision of ourselves, then to cleanse us of our sin and to call us and commission us into service in the world. This is the work that God was, wanted to do to Israel and they would not listen. It's the, wor- it's the work that God did in Isaiah. He did listen. He proclaims the message. It's the work God is doing today to raise up Christians and his church today. It's a work of grace. And there are at least five aspects of it. Number one, the first thing the Lord does to raise up the messenger, to take the message, or to raise up the church, or to even call someone to be a Christian, is in verse one, and it's this. It's the death of a lesser hope. The year was the year that King Uzziah died. We talked about that last week. I won't go into all the details from Second Chronicles 26, but sh- briefly I'll say the people of God in this day wanted a king so that they could be like all the other nations. Now, that's very key. They wanted a king so they could be like all the other nations. And any time we want something for the purpose of becoming like the world, that something is certainly a false hope. They trusted in a king, not in the Lord, for their protection and for their prosperity. And so, like all their kings previous, Uzziah died. And all men and women will die. And the death of our false hopes is a grace. 
It is a wonderful gift from God, as painful as it may be. Because it is preparation for the real hope. And maybe that needs to be a part of your prayer life this week. The second part of this pattern, after the Lord brings a death to our false hope, the Lord gives a vision of himself. Verses 1 through 4 is the vision that Isaiah saw of the Lord. And this is what he said. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne. God is the sovereign king. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, reinforcing the sovereignty of the Lord as above all earthly powers. Ephesians 1 that we read a moment ago, Christ has been raised from the dead, seated in heaven far above all rule and authority and dominion and every name. He is above it. He's seated on a throne high and lifted up. Philippians 2, he's been exalted and given a name which is above every name. How do you know this? How do we know this is Christ? Because the Gospel of John tells us that when Isaiah wrote and said and prophesied Isaiah chapter 6 specifically he says Isaiah looked ahead and saw and spoke of Christ and because 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 says that the glory of Christ or the glory of God is in the face of Christ you see him as Jesus said you see me you see the father You see Jesus Christ, you see the glory of God. This is a vision of God on a throne. It's the vision of Christ who's seated on a throne far above all authority. Verses one and three, filled and full. The temple is filled and the earth is full of the presence and the glory of Christ. Verses two through four, Isaiah has as much to say about the seraphim, the burning ones they are, the burning ones, the heavenly beings. What they do and what they say communicates the very nature of God to Isaiah. The vision of God to Isaiah has to be mediated through seraphim because God is too holy for direct contact. With, with unholy humans. And these seraphim, these burning ones, these heavenly beings, they've got six wings. And with two, they cover their faces because not even the heavenly beings can have a direct look on this glory. Isn't, isn't the new covenant reality in Christ so amazing? that the seraphim could not have a direct glance at the glory of God, but we can look at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And with two of their wings, they covered their feet. Why? Because everywhere God is, is holy ground. And they flew and they called out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What do you do with holy, holy, holy he's the holiest in the holy of holies he's the highest and most complete perfection it puts him holy 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 puts God in a category 
of his own. God is alone. God is alone. You say, no, he's not. He's not alone. He's got the seraphim. No. They have to cover their faces and their feet. God is all alone in his holiness. Holiness, the holiness of God, A.W. Tozer has helped me with this, is his perfection in all of his attributes and all of his ways. Everything that we can say about God that is true, God is all of it. And he's perfect in all of it. He's perfect in all of his attributes and all of his ways. He's morally, essentially perfect and good and just and right and pure. There's no mixture with God of good and bad. There's not one improper motive in God. He's never made a mistake. He's never thought of making a mistake. How long can we go on like this forever trying to find language to describe the holiness of God? He's completely other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. This is the vision that God in his grace gives to Isaiah and to every person who comes to know him. Now, I do not mean to say anything negative about our words about God, our preaching or our singing and worship. I don't mean to say one thing negative. We do the best we can do. But we see something here that is real and it is unsettling and is actually a bit uncomfortable. What we see next after holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory The foundations shook. We see something here that is uncomfortable. And it's it's really not even a part of the normal way we think about responding to holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. What we see comes from Isaiah himself. It's the third part of this pattern. And it is the conviction of sin and the awareness of brokenness. Because we're so uncomfortable with this, we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I don't mean to be unkind or negative, but what is our response? Well, modulate up a bit and sing it a bit louder. And then say, awesome. It's great. We say, what great worship we had. What does Isaiah say? Verse 5. Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. And that's not the end of the sentence. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's seeing the King in all of His holiness that made Him say that. Now, this is not a state of being that one finds him or herself in where they have no culpability. There are those states of being 
When he says, woe is me, he's not talking about a state of being where he doesn't have responsibility. There are those states of being. There are innocent victims of war, innocent victims of abuse and of criminal activity. There are people with physical and mental conditions of disease that they did not contribute to with their own sin. So there are states of being that people can be in without culpability, without responsibility. But that's not what Isaiah is talking about here. What he means when he says, woe is me, he means I am culpable, I am responsible, I am spiritually and morally unclean, sinful. He stands before God, and in standing before the holy God, he becomes aware of his own sinfulness. And this is not a self-righteous prophet who is pointing out the sins of others. Not just today, that's been going on forever, but certainly today there's way too much self-righteous pointing out of the sins of other people. That's not what biblical prophets do. Biblical prophets say, woe is me. They have to be prepared to bring the message. And they're prepared to bring the message by understanding themselves. I am lost. I am unclean. If he's standing next to the people of Jerusalem, then he may not come to this realization. If he's standing next to the people of Jerusalem, he, say, he may say, I'm not so unclean. I'm not so lost. But he's not standing next to the people of Jerusalem. He's standing before the holy God. And so he sees and he knows that he's undone. It's like Psalm 130. If the Lord counts our sins against us, who can stand? Or Psalm 143. Don't enter into judgment with your servant because no one's righteous before you. Or Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or the tax collector in Luke 18, be merciful on me, I'm a sinner. Or Peter in the boat with Jesus in Luke 5, depart from me, I'm a sinner. Or the apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It's the re reality of us all. We can't cover it up. We can't make up for it. We have to face up to it and stop running and stop ignoring and stop distracting ourselves from the realization that before God we're sinners. We have to come to terms with this. And thankfully, we're not left there. The fourth part of this pattern is that there is cleansing of sin. Verse 6. The seraphim, one of them, flew to Isaiah and had a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He's a messenger from God. He's a messenger now to the messenger. He's sent from God. This is divine initiative. Isaiah is not saying, God, let me figure out how to clean, get clean. No, the Lord says, I have to cleanse you. It is from my altar. It is divine initiative. It is divine Provision, it is divine cleansing. It is a burning coal from the altar of God sent by God to touch Isaiah's mouth. It is a divine application 
of cleansing to Isaiah to remove your guilt, to take away your, your, your guilt, to atone for your sin. It is a divine verdict. It is Isaiah finding himself before the Lord with a work of grace coming from God himself. Nothing that he can do on his own, no cleanness on his own, but a, a divine cleansing from God himself with the verdict, no guilt, you're clean, your sin is removed. This is, this is why we say this is Isaiah's conversion. It's his salvation, it's his cleansing, it's his conversion. And it is all 100% of grace. It is all by God's grace. The word unfolds. And we come to Isaiah 53. And there's this one, there's somebody, there's, there's someone that Isaiah is talking about who is going to be pierced for our sin, who's going to be crushed for our iniquity. There's somebody coming who's going to take all of our guilt upon himself and then become an offering as a guilt offering for us. Somebody's coming who's going to bear our sins away. It, the word just keeps unfolding until we come to Romans 3. And we find out that this one who's going to take away the sin, like these seraphim did with, with Isaiah when they put the coals on his mouth, this is the one's going to come and take away his sin, and he's going to be what's called a propitiation for sin. He's going to bear God's wrath, and he's going to remove sin. He's going to put people right with God. And they're going to be justified before God. And this, there's somebody coming, and he is going to actually become sin. He's going to take the weight of human sin upon himself so that people, through faith in him, can have their sins removed and be justified before God. There's one who is coming, it said, who's actually going to become sin. There's one who's coming who's going to, be, who's going to suffer for the sins of the unrighteous to bring them to God. It just unfolds until we come to find out he has a name. Again, we find out he's got a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. And that place, that place of atonement for sin and of cleansing is what he did, what he suffered, what he endured, the penalty he paid, the wrath he bore because he took our sin upon himself at the cross. That folks is the holy seed that's the one who comes from the stump it is not hopeless there is cleansing there is cleansing for you if you will come to faith in Jesus Christ there is cleansing you may be you may the first part of that you may say yes it's a woe is me I'm a sinner I am undone I have sinned some of you have the vague sense of it and I I know because I know some of you are dealing with maybe one or two really big sins that you think you can never ever be forgiven of and the good news the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Christ died for your sins and he will touch your heart and he will cleanse you and wash you and forgive you and you can be converted you can be a child of God you can if I can if Paul can Paul said he was the chief of sinners chief but God forgave him. Do you believe this? This is conversion. Will you receive this? You don't have to say, woe is me forever. You say, woe is me, and then you say, here am I, send me, because God changes you by his grace. Which is the final part of this. There's the call and the commission, verses eight and nine. The Lord says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I, us, well, which one is it? One God and three persons, that's what it is. 
The Father purposing, the Son providing, the Spirit applying salvation to the human heart. Who will go? He's sending. Who will go for us to represent us? And verse 8, the conversion. The conversion is complete. It is the evidence of grace. Isaiah first said, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm a sinner, I'm undone. And now he says, here I am, send me. The evidence of grace, it is the saving, transforming power of God's grace. It is real and it is evident in the life of every Christian. It's evident in the life of the church, of a congregation. The converted Christian, converted church says, send me. Send me, not in some self-appointed way, not in a self-righteous way, but only by the transforming power of God's grace because the converted person has lost all hope in all false hopes. The converted person has been given a vision of the holiness of God and of their own sin before God, and the converted person has come to understand that forgiveness is in Christ alone, and now they are cleansed from woe is me to send me, and the Lord says, let's go. Go! So today, congregation, trust Christ to save you. He will. Congregation, don't be dull, don't be deaf, don't be blind to the spiritual truth of God. Ask him to awaken you to his truth. Congregation, let's go through the pattern, the Isaiah pattern of conversion. Let's be rid of our false hopes. Let's ask the Lord to give us a vision of his holiness in our sinfulness and his cleansing, but to hear, to hear the call of God to be his church in this world. Let's pray for the people, people in our lives, people we know. Let's pray that, that God will take them through this. Just ask the Lord, 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 take our loved ones, and we love them, but God, just remove the false hope even if they feel like they're in a free fall. Let it happen, Lord, because it's the only way they'll turn to Christ. Pray it through, all the way through, and pray that they will come to know Christ. How long? How long? Until the Holy One returns. Until His purposes are fulfilled. Until, as we'll get to at the end of Isaiah, until there is a new heaven and a new earth that is full of His glory. That's how long we keep going.